0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Congratulations, true crime addicts. We've survived another week. It is Friday, August 19th, 2022. And these are the top true crime stories from around the world. Brought to you by me, James Renner. Hey, before we get started, if you are in the Savannah, Georgia area, I will be at the first Savannah Crime Expo Saturday, September 10th, so uh, come on down, hang out with us, it's just a day, uh, make it a day trip, um, and uh, it should be, should be a fun, uh, fun time. Lots of very big podcasts coming there. Um, you'll meet your, your favorite true crime people, so come on down. I'll be at Savannah. Uh, I've only been in Savannah a couple times. Of course, that's the home of um, John Grisham, correct, and the Square Books. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful city. I'm happy to go back. Can't wait. Um, come on down to Savannah, September 10th. Uh, so here's the the true Top true crime stories. I've got some cold case updates after the break that you're going to want to stick around for, too. Uh, at the top of the show, we're going to talk about Salmon, Salman Rushdie, a very famous novelist who was stabbed during a lecture last Friday. Uh, it was a, an attempted assassination. Um, you're going to want to know about this. Here's a little background. Uh, Salman Rushdie very famous novelist. He was the author of uh, The Satanic Verses, which was published in 1988. Now, Salman Rushdie 75 years old. He's a bit of a lethario, as they call it. Um, but we're not going to count that against him. <laughs> He's a very interesting character if you're into the world of um, of, of literature and the literati and all that. Uh, he was giving a lecture on artistic freedom at the Chautauqua Institute last Friday. Now, Chautauqua, the Chautauqua Institute, it's in New York. I've been there. It's kind of this, like, kind of fancy, snobby writer's retreat. And they invite authors to come in and, and, and talk. And uh, Salman was, was about to give a lecture on artistic freedom. At the Chautauqua Institute last Friday, when 24-year-old Hattie Matar rushed the stage and stabbed Salman at least 10 times, stabbed him in the uh, in the neck, in his eye, in his arm, pierced his liver. This was an attempt to kill him. Why? It's because of this fourth novel of his satanic verses that came out in 1988. The book was inspired by the life of Muhammad, which is essentially the, the core of the Islamic religion. Um, but really, you know, that's what it is on the surface, but really the book is kind of like a big metaphor for um, what it's like to be an immigrant in Britain in the 1980s. This is what literature is all about. It's, it's one thing on the surface. It's all about the subtext. And that's what these people can't quite understand. So back in 1988 when this was published, um, the supreme leader of Iran, first of his name, the Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, Ayatollah Khomeini, he condemned Rushdie. This is what we call a fatwa. And he said, anybody that kills him, will get a couple million dollars. In fact, not just Salman Rushdie, but anybody that had anything to do with the publication of this book that degrades the image of Muhammad. um, If you kill them, you'll get millions of dollars. So Rushdie immediately went into hiding in 1988. And then, you know, you, you think, well, maybe he's overreacting. But in 1991, the Japanese Translator of the book was stabbed to death. He died, and that same month, the Italian translator was also stabbed. He ended up surviving, though. Salman started uh, becoming more public just about twenty years ago. He appeared on an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm a couple, just a couple years ago. Now, um, a little personal aside. I actually saw Salman Rushdie in person at a speaking event in New York City about six or seven years ago. It was Stephen King, um, it was all my favorite authors, Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, and John Irving. They were all together on stage at uh, Madison Square Gardens. And uh, Salman Rushdie was in the crowd. In fact, he stood up and asked a question, I think, of Stephen King. So he was kind of... You know, he was in this audience of hundreds of people and feeling pretty safe at that time. So um, this caught up with him, though, last Friday. He was seriously injured in the Friday attack. Um, People expected he possibly might die. He was put on a ventilator. He still might lose that eye, by the way. Um, The New York Post actually was able to get a jailhouse interview with Matar. Alleged assassin, uh, attempted assassin, that is, where he, Matar admitted to the crime and said he was surprised that Salman didn't die. Matar, by the way, um, you know, what's his background? Well, he was living in his mother's basement in New Jersey, uh, working at Marshall's, and somehow, I don't know why, that little detail doesn't surprise me. Like, if somebody's going to assassinate, Salman Rushdie, I—he probably works at Marshalls. It's kind of a mundane detail. Um, and uh, is uh, <laughs> supposedly he—he he lived in his mother's basement and played video games and watched Netflix all day. Kind of a real loser. Um, he, anyways, he's being held without bail right now in New York uh, because you know he's. Super poor, right? Living out of his mother's basement, but since he attempted to assassinate Salman, uh, he might get these millions of dollars, and so the judge is holding him without bail. Um, and when the when the New York Post asked him why he killed Salman, he, you know, he's like, ah, he's against the Islamic religion. And they're like, did you read the book? And he's like, well, I read a page or two. Um, you know, he, he could have saved everybody a lot of trouble if he just went on Goodreads. You know, stabbing Salman Rushdie is one thing, but giving him a one-star review, that's what's going to hurt. Hey, I've got an update in the Stephen Avery case. I, I don't think you expected me to mention uh, this guy this week. He, you know, he, he's probably in prison forever. Um, But no, he's back. So get ready for Making a Murderer Part 3. This time it's personal. Um, (laughs) This has to do with celebrity attorney Catherine Zellner. Remember her? Uh, She filed a motion just this Tuesday asking a judge in Wisconsin to order a new trial for Stephen Avery. Why? Because she says she knows who the real killer is. Now, a little background. For those that don't remember, Stephen Avery was the subject of this documentary, Making a Murderer, which was kind of the the first wave of this true crime phenomenon. And they showed how Avery was once convicted of the 1985 rape and attempted murder of a woman in Wisconsin, where he served 18 years behind bars before he was exonerated due to DNA evidence. He didn't really... ...rape and and, uh, try to kill this woman. And he spent 18 years behind bars. He got out. Then on uh, Halloween Day in 2005... ...Teresa Teresa Halbach... ...disappeared during... ...she she disappeared. And she was... ...that day... ...she was scheduled to um, have an appointment... ...with Stephen Avery. This guy that had been convicted for this murder... ...he didn't... ...or I'm sorry... ...this rape that he didn't commit... And she disappears. So obviously he's gonna be the first on the suspect list, right? Well, um, she had gone to his place because she was supposed to photograph Stephen Avery's sister's minivan for this Auto Trader magazine. It's all a a really big mess. Uh, You gotta watch the documentary if you haven't. Um, Alleged planning of evidence, there's weird police behavior, there's a coerced confession. It's got everything. Anyways, Avery was eventually found guilty of Teresa Halbach's murder in 2007. And he's serving life in prison right now. is claiming, this is according to the website Law and Crime, and you can go and read her motion if you want, but she's claiming that a relative named Bobby Dassey is actually responsible for what happened to Teresa Halbach. And uh, she cites evidence, circumstantial evidence, like he was searching for very graphic pornography the day that she disappeared. More important, uh, she says she has a witness who will testify that he saw Bobby pushing Halbach's vehicle into the salvage yard on Avery's property in an attempt to frame Stephen Avery for the murder. If that's true, that's some, that's some big news. So check that out. There might be a whole new chapter in that drama. And I have a personal connection to this too. I want to just, I, it's an opportunity to tell the story. The prosecutor for Stephen Avery's case in the Teresa Halbach murder was a guy named Ken Kratz. Um, He's no longer a prosecutor. You can Google to find out why. Uh, But I had an opportunity to meet Ken Kratz at the first ever crime con in Indianapolis a few years ago. Here's a photo of us together in better times. Uh, And a very weird uh, moment happened there. I had uh, taken my wife. now. My wife Julie, she's not into true crime at all. She hates it with the white hot intensity of a thousand suns, actually. And uh, but she came with me because she wanted to see Indianapolis. We're at the bar, and I see Ken Kratz, and I'm like, oh, oh man, I gotta get my uh, I gotta get my picture with this guy. I'm gonna start this uh, uh, album, which will be pictures with assholes, and he'll be my first. He'll be my first guy. That I get. So um, I went up and uh, introduced myself to Ken Kratz and I said, uh, Can I get a picture of you? And Ken Kratz uh, looked at me and then he looked at my wife, Julie, and he did this. And he went down all the way to her toes and all the way up. And he said, Why don't I get a picture with her instead? To which Julie said, because I don't know who the fuck you are. And uh, if you've never seen a grown man's pride crumble before you, put it on your bucket list because it's, it's pretty awesome. Final story tonight involves um, a mystery out of New South Wales, Australia that is developing. Very strange. This involves, uh, and this comes to us from uh, The Guardian newspaper, uh, police are asking for the public's health to help them find out what happened to two sisters from Saudi Arabia who ended up dead in their jurisdiction. This is one, Asra Al-Sali, who is 24 years old, and her sister, Amal al uh 23 years old. They had fled to Australia from Saudi Arabia seeking asylum in Sydney. They were found dead in their beds in their apartment in June. There were no signs of forced entry, and they had been dead for over a month before they were found. So, of course, the coroner was not able to find cause of death due to decomposition. Now, one of the young women we've learned was seeking asylum because she was gay and feared persecution in her home country. Saudi Arabia where that sort of thing is punishable by death. Their bodies were sent back to Saudi Arabia just this week. The sisters worked for traffic control for a construction company and they were awaiting official visas and becoming Australian citizens. It seemed as though that was a real possibility. Now here's the kicker in january of this year just a few months before their death they sent their building manager an email asking if he could make sure the cctv cameras outside their apartment were working properly why because they feared that their food delivery their uh, grub hub in australia the people that were delivering their food somebody was t- they, they feared that somebody was tampering with the food so you wonder how these two women ended up dead in their beds. Was it poison? It's certainly too far for the coroner to know for certain, but that's a big red flag. So if you have any information about these sisters' deaths, or if you know more about this mystery in some way, contact the local police in New South Wales. Um, check, it, check that mystery out. I think it's something that it will just get bigger as the weeks go by. Hey, we're going to take a real quick break. I've got some crazy cold case news coming up and uh, some breakthroughs in genetic genealogy. You're not going to want to miss this. Stay tuned. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you And we're back with V, starring June Chadwick. Hey, (laughs) have you tried Silk City hot sauce yet? Made in small batches in Vermont with locally grown peppers, Silk City hot sauce has several flavors to choose from. There's mild sauces like Aztec Attack and Maple Chipotle. Medium blends like Badass Jew... Dragon Mango Madness, and Slurp. There's some that are just plain hot, like Climate Change. Also, check out their new Bloody Mary Mixer. That's super potent. It features tomato, horseradish, and pickles, and a sauce called Fired Up that features farm-fresh carrots. Go to SilkCityHotSauce.com and use my coupon code for 15% off your first order. That's CRIME. The special code is CRIME. C-R-I-M-E. Tell them James Renner sent (laughs) you. That's my favorite part of the show, guys. Uh, (laughs) I've got some crazy cold case updates here for you. I want to tell you about one Jan Borden. Jan Borden has reappeared this week after going missing a year ago in Egypt, according to the Washington Post. Now, Jan is from France and was backpacking in Egypt when he disappeared last August. He's a 27-year-old grad student from the Sorbonne. That's the fancy university in France that uh, is one of the oldest colleges in the world. It it, uh, started in... 1200 AD. His family believes he was detained by the Egyptian police. And when the Egyptian president visited France uh, just a couple months ago in June, the family protested outside uh, the, the little square where he visited and held up signs and said, hey, where's Yann where's Um So this might have something to do with that and they cite a number of forced disappearances recently in Egypt. Jan, for his part, is not talking to the press at this point, so it's hard to tell exactly what happened there, but that case is closed at this point. Um, Remember a couple weeks ago, I mentioned the barrels that they found in Lake Mead outside Las Vegas? Now, because of climate change, Lake Mead is drying up. And, uh, you know, back in the day, <laughs> you know, back in Sinatra's day, Lake Mead is where you, you know, you took people to live with the fishes, you'd swim with the fishes. Uh, that's where you'd have the cement shoes, as they'd say. The mafia, you know, and to this day, Vegas is very mobbed up. Um, you know, that's that, that was their favorite disposal point. So lake me drying up all these barrels are floating to the surface and and showing up in the mud there and they found this body in a barrel a couple months ago well we think that body might be uh a guy named bobby eugene shaw this is according to kktv out of las vegas bobby eugene shaw went missing back in 1977 it's a year before i was born about 45 years ago Police just recently uh, collected a DNA sample from Bobby Shaw's sister for comparison. The sister thinks it's him. The family thinks it's him. This This might be our guy. Bobby matches the description and time frame, and according to his family, he had connections to the mob in Vegas and had disappeared on a trip to the Sin City. So we might have an answer to that case. Genetic genealogy news. I should I should get one of those big flashy things. Genetic genealogy. Well, because um, I think it's a big thing. This is just in from the DNA Doe Project. On July 28, 2019, a man was found unresponsive in the parking lot of a shopping center in Tucson, Arizona, with no identification and keys to a car that was not in the lot. After three years, the... Uh, Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner and the DNA Doe Project have confirmed his identity as one James Mark Chaparro, who lived less than a mile away from the place where he was found. Now, Mr. Chaparro was 64 years old when he died and had been raised in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Reacher's, researchers located records from October 2019 of an eviction, and non-payment of rent, It's thought that he had walked to the store and simply never made it home. According to family members, they believe he was living in China. I want to know that part of the story. So they never filed a missing persons report. Bruce Anderson, forensic anthropologist with the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner, brought the case to the DNA Doe Project in the spring of this year. Four expert volunteers from the nonprofit began work on the case in June of this year, and were able to place John Doe in a family tree that was complicated with adoption, misattributed parentage, and Hispanic ancestry. This was not an easy case, and four genetic genealogists from the DNA doe project were able to solve it like that that 's how good the science is it 's amazing we 're living in a, a breakthrough tr- through time of um, True crime and genetic genealogy. The team built a family tree going back to Mr. Chaparro's great-great-great-grandparents in order to fit matches they found in GEDmatch. Uh, This is a quote here. We had a first cousin once removed that shared centimorgans with our doe and another first cousin once removed who shared 21 centimorgans with him. Now, 21 centimorgan match is literally almost nothing, and they were able to build a family tree from that. It's amazing. Like 24, like I'm probably related to Charlemagne by 21 centimorgans. So the fact that they were able to narrow this down so quickly is um, breathtaking. So good job for them. I got some weird news for you, and not so weird news, it's just kind of sad news. Um, I am no fan of capital punishment and this this story cements my, my feelings on that these details were just released this week it involves an execution that happened july 28th and this is the execution of Joe Nathan James Jr. The story coming from you to you from oxygen.com uh, it is Joe Nathan James Jr. is in the record books. This is now the longest execution in United States history. He was declared dead three hours after his execution began. His autopsy shows awful suffering. He he had several bruises and lacerations from failed IV insertions. Journalists were there now. Journalists are always present for executions. Why? Because if they weren't, we might uh, tend to have them every day. So uh, journalists were brought in for this execution. They, were, they had to wait in a hot bus for like three hours. And they're like, what the fuck is going on? And finally, they were brought in uh, into the death room, into the gallery, to watch this execution happen. They pulled back the curtains. And here is Joe Nathan James Jr., except he seemed unconscious. It's actually illegal to execute somebody who's unconscious. Um, but the prison is saying, oh, no, 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 he, he wasn't unconscious. He, he just didn't open his eyes. Um, the journalists believe he was absolutely unconscious. Uh, now, it seems as though they were trying to find a vein and having a lot of trouble. Now, this reminds me of the Ronald Bruhn case in Ohio. Um, interesting case, a guy who was meant to be executed and they brought him in for the execution, but they couldn't find a vein, so they actually sent him back. And now he can't be executed because to keep doing that would be um, um, illegal. It would be, uh, you know, torture, essentially. So, um, in Ronald Brune, he was on the execution table. He was lying there. They were trying to find a vein, And they kept poking him, and they couldn't find it. And finally, Ronald was like, here, I'll do it. And he started poking his own vein for the execution. Still couldn't do it. But uh, Which is a long way of saying the United States is the only developed country that still executes criminals. Uh, We are up there with Yemen and North Korea as far as executions go. Hey, let's take a look at pop culture. Uh, I hope you're checking this out. Hulu has a new documentary series called Leave No Trace, and here's the write-up. Leave No Trace investigates a century-long cover-up as 82,000 men step forward with claims of sexual abuse, exposing the failure of the Boy Scouts of America to protect their young scouts. This is uh, specifically personal for me in many ways. Um, First of all, it's very timely. Uh, There's an ongoing lawsuit where the Boy Scouts of America is trying to get out of bankruptcy. And there was, uh, just last week, uh, they were in front of a judge trying to argue that, trying to figure out how much money they're responsible for, how many billions of dollars they're responsible for, for paying out to boys who were molested during their stay in the Boy Scouts. I am currently writing a book, it probably won't be out until 2024, 2025, about my experience at a summer camp where I was a counselor in 1995. Um, A young man died under, well, he committed, he died by suicide, as they say, after assaulting another scout. So I'm doing a lot of research into the subject right now. But it's an excellent documentary. Leave No Trace. Check it out if you haven't already. Let's check the charts. The top true crime podcasts according to chartable.com. Hey, we got a new podcast in the top ten this week. And I couldn't be happier about this. Number five right now is Crooked City. It's about Youngstown, Ohio. Here's the write-up. The Saturday Evening Post dubbed Youngstown, Ohio, Crime Town, USA. It was a mob town. Illegal gambling was so lucrative that a mob war raged for decades and bodies piled up. Then Jim Traficant ran for sheriff, writing into office as the city's steel industry fell on in hard times. Traficant battled the local newspaper, then the FBI, then the IRS, and finally his own demons as an 8 term, twice indicted congressman. And as somebody who grew up in Northeast Ohio, I absolutely remember Jim Trafficant. He was essentially Trump before, before Trump. Uh, we had our own little Trump here in Northeast Ohio. His name was Jim Traficant. And everything that you, you remember about Trump, that was Jim Trafficant. And Youngstown to this day remains mobbed up. It's one of the last centers of the mafia in North, Northeast Ohio. In fact, my father, would would tell tale of hanging out with uh, some some mafiosa people, uh, and they would tell them which ponies to bet on on the racetrack. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I don't have those connections anymore. Sometimes I wish I did. Um, finally, in uh, the podcast world, you should be checking out the Murdoch Murders. Podcast by Mandy Matney. It is heating up, folks. If you haven't followed this case, Alec Murdoch is accused of crazy crimes, including murder, murdering his own wife, and children. Um, he's that guy with the red hair, and he's got that look that, like, he's just devoid of a soul. Like, eyes like a shark's, like doll's eyes. Um, But you got to check out this Murdoch Murders podcast by Mandy Matney and David Moses and Liz Farrell. The Murdochs, um, they talk about this week, we're taking advantage of clients. There's emotional damage. Um, Journalists, including Mandy Matney, are now being named in motions in this case. It seems like the defense is trying to uh, mute this podcast. So it's important that you support them. So check out the Murdoch Murders. And um, that's the news for this week, guys. Uh, I guess that's it. And um, it's a crazy week, but it is Friday, which is always reason to celebrate. And in the words of the incomparable, Murray Saul, the godfather of Cleveland radio, we got to, got to, got to, got to, Gotta 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 get down! Damn it!